It's a tribute to modern medicine that most of us know very little about the disease of leprosy. Most of us have never seen a leper. We know only what we read in the Bible. If we lived in Bible times, we would know a great deal more. At the time when Jesus lived, it was perhaps the most feared disease in the world. It was deadly. It was incurable. It was people had, uh, were hopeless who had the disease. So much did the ancients fear it that anyone suspecting of having the disease was banished from society. In the rabbinic writings, we find remedies for various diseases, but nothing is listed for leprosy. The rabbis said that curing leprosy was like trying to raise the dead. Today, leprosy is called Hansen's disease after the Norwegian doctor who in 1873 discovered the bacterium that causes the disease. There are actually several kinds of leprosy, and today uh, we know that the Bible words translated leprosy actually covered a broad range of eruptive skin disorders. The worst kind of leprosy follows the general pattern of, first, a patch of skin uh, appears that is discolored. It might occur on the brow, the nose, the ear, the cheek, or the chin. Second, the patch turns white or pink and begins to spread rapidly in all directions. Third, the disease spreads to various internal organs. The eyebrows may disappear. Tumors appear on the body. Fourth, uh, tissue begins to disintegrate, causing the hands and feet to become deformed. Fifth, the nerve endings of the body are destroyed. And this is the most critical and dangerous stage of leprosy because it means that the affected person loses their ability to feel pain. It was feared by the ancients because it produced such terrible results, and it was contagious, and because it could not be cured. Now, for all of those reasons, Leviticus in the Old Testament, uh, the book of Leviticus, chapter 13 and 14, gives God's people special instructions concerning the diagnosis and the treatment of leprosy. And essentially, it says that any swelling or rash or skin infection must be immediately presented to the priest for his inspection. And he is to examine the sore and the skin surrounding it and the color of the hair within the infected area because white hair was considered to be a danger sign. Now the person thus inspected would be quarantined for seven days. At the end of those seven days, if the infection disappeared, that person could be readmitted to society. And if not, then the person diagnosed as having leprosy was banished from society during the time of their infection. This is how Leviticus chapter 13 puts the matter. Those who suffer from a serious skin disease must tear their clothing and leave their hair uncombed. They must cover their mouth and call out, unclean, unclean. As long as the serious disease lasts, they will be ceremonially unclean. They must live in isolation in their place outside the camp. Now one author explains that this banish, what this banishment meant to a leper. As the leper passed by, his clothes would be torn, people would recognize that they were a leper, the hair would be disheveled, and the lower part of their face and upper lip covered, and it was, the person, uh, it was like a person uh, going to death reading their own burial service. The mournful words that they had to shout out, unclean, unclean, um, proclaimed that they were you know, both living, uh, they were living this really uh, uh, death as they still lived. So with all of that today as a background, I want to take you to a statement or a story in the New Testament, book of uh, Luke, chapter 17. 
And here we read about Jesus traveling near the border of Samaria and Galilee when he meets up with a group of lepers. Now the Bible says that he was on his way to Jerusalem for the last time and death on the cross was on his mind and we don't know precisely where this encounter took place. It was a small village in a remote area precisely where you would expect to find a leper colony. And it's no surprise that Jesus encounters these unfortunate men between the area of Galilee and Samaria. Now, Galilee was Jesus' home base. He was raised there. His family was there. His boyhood friends were there. He made his headquarters at Capernaum on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And most of his miracles and much of his teaching was done there in Galilee. It was the land of his greatest popularity. But Samaria was a different matter. Good Jews avoided Samaria if they, if they could. The story goes back hundreds of years to the Assyrian captivity, which began in 722 BC. Some of the Jews had intermarried with the Assyrians and had become, in the eyes of their countrymen, half-breeds and traitors. And over the years, the Samaritans had become a mixed race with a mixed religion. So the Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans responded in kind. So here it is on the front, uh, frontier between Galilee and, and Samaria in the DMZ, uh, between the Jews and the Samaritans, that Jesus meets this group of lepers. Where else could they go? The Jews didn't want them, neither did the Samaritans. But verse, four, uh, verse 12 of chapter 17 uh, gives us what sounds like an eyewitness account. It says, as he entered a village there, 10 lepers stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now here is this colony of lepers joined by their common misfortune and misery. And their only uniting characteristic is the disease that has had them cast out of regular society. Every a detail is true in this story. As Jesus enters the village, these men stand far away, as a leper would, crying out for mercy. How did they know who Jesus was? Well, no doubt they had heard rumors floating around the barren countryside that this man could heal lepers. No doubt they had discussed it and maybe even had discounted it. But even if he could do such a thing, what were the chances that he would ever come to their village, this remote place in nowhere? But now the word begins to spread. He's here. Who's here? Jesus of Nazareth. I don't believe it. It's true. He's here. Do you think he can heal us? I don't know. Let's go find out. So they stand. Uh, uh, this group is standing there, this most ragged bunch Ten lepers crying out to Jesus for mercy. And my guess is no more pitiful sound ever came to our Lord's ears. Have mercy on us was the cry from the lips of these men who had seen too little mercy in their life and too much condemnation. So what would Jesus do? Will he heal them right there and then? That was certainly within his power and no doubt what the, what, uh, that was what the lepers hoped for. But instead, Jesus said something that kind of sounds surprising to us. When he saw them, Jesus said to them, go show yourself to the priests. Now, at first glance, we might think that Jesus is simply putting them off. We might even conclude that he didn't intend to heal them at all. 
But if we come to that conclusion, we might infer that Jesus meant to impress upon them the hopelessness of their condition. But all of those inferences are incorrect. As a matter of fact, Jesus fully intended to heal them. And this part of the story is critical. He intended to do it in keeping with the demands of the law of Moses. Leviticus 14 clearly states that the priest must authenticate any cure. And now in reality, we know that no one was ever cured of leprosy. After many years, maybe 15 or 20 years, um, in, in many cases, the infection was gone, and the person who by that time bore all the ravaging remar- uh, marks of this disease might be allowed to re-enter society if they survived that long, and most didn't. Now, if Jesus hadn't sent the lepers to the priests, no one would have ever believed that a miracle had taken place. But that's not the whole story. The last part of verse 14 says that as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. As as they went, they were healed as they got up and moved and went to the priest. Not before, not after, but that means that when they left to go to the priest, they still had leprosy. How do you suppose they felt when Jesus said, go show yourselves to the priest? Go show what to the priest? We're still lepers. You see, they didn't have anything to show to the priest that the priest would want to see. In fact, the last thing the priest wanted to see was 10 smelly, disheveled, deformed, wretched lepers. And I wonder if someone said, why bother? After all, once a leper, always a leper. You see, there were sores everywhere. They had deformed arms. They had fingers that had been bitten off by rodents. They had, you could smell this disease a quarter of a mile away. But off they go. Maybe doubting all the way, but off they go. This shuffling band of sufferers, and they're marching off to see the priest. And they take one step, and they're still lepers. They take a second step, nothing happens. They take a third step, and the leprosy is still clinging to their body. But on the fourth step, something wonderful, something unbelievable, something that they never dreamed possible happens. With that fourth step, they are healed instantly, miraculously, all ten at once. They were healed as they went. Not before, not after, but in the act of going, they were healed. Why? Because it was the act of going that was the act of faith. It didn't matter how they felt about it. God honored their going in spite of their doubts. Now that brings us to a tremendous spiritual insight. You see, our faith moves mountains when our faith moves us. When Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest, he was really saying, act as if you're already healed. What a great piece of advice that is. So many times we pray and we pray and we pray, And nothing seems to happen. But when our faith, shaky though it may be, finally moves us to action, God honors that, and the answers begin to come. Why? Because faith is belief plus unbelief, but acting on the belief part. Some of us, though, are trapped by the curse of passive religion. You know what that is. It's the view that says trusting God always uh, means letting God do it for us. And so we pray, Lord, I really need more money. I need some money to to survive, but we're not out looking for that uh, better job. 
We pray, Lord, help me lose weight, but we refuse to start exercising. You see, passive religion uses God as an excuse. Now, if your name is, uh, was Noah, and God told you it's, it's about to rain, it may be all right to pray for an ark, but while you're praying, you better go out and cut some wood and start building. If your name was David, you might find yourself in that valley facing a giant by the name of Goliath, and it's all right to pray for victory, but while you're praying, you better pick up some stones and get out that slingshot you brought along with you. You see, trusting God does not equal doing nothing. Remember, the ten lepers were healed as they went. Our faith moves mountains when our faith moves us. So the ten lepers were healed. It's a miraculous, you know, marvelous miracle. It's not the end, but that's not the end of the story. In fact, that's not even the heart of the story. Another miracle is about to happen. Look at verse 15. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus, shouting, Praise God! And he fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Ten were healed. Only one came back to give thanks. Luke says that he fell on his face before the Lord, and he began to have a shouting session. And why not? He'd been healed of leprosy for 20 years. He had been a leper living in this remote corner of the world, separated from his family, forgotten by his friends, cut off from his own people, and suddenly this disease vanishes. And with it, the twisted limp and the crooked fingers and the atrophied muscles. And in less time than it takes me to tell this story, uh, uh, this disease with all of its ugly tentacles is removed from his body, leaving not a trace behind. And he stretches out his arms, and he begins to wave and picks up stones to see how far he can throw, and he begins to walk around and jump and leap into the air because he's whole again. He's clean. He's no longer an outcast. No wonder he began to shout. You and I would as well. When Luke adds then the, the last part of that uh, verse, he says, he was a Samaritan. There's a certain amount of shock in that statement. Remember, Jesus was a Jew, and Jews thought Samaritans were half-breed traitors. And to make matters worse, he's a Samaritan leper. To a Jew, a more repulsive combination could not ever be found. He was from the wrong race, he had the wrong religion, and he had the worst possible disease. In religious matters, this Samaritan knew almost nothing, and what he knew was mostly wrong, but he knew Jesus, and he knew Jesus had healed him, and he knew enough to be grateful to God. And that statement is why this story is in the Bible. Let me go one step further. Luke doesn't say so directly, but I think he implies that the other nine lepers were Jews. And if that's so, then what this story really means is that those who should have been most grateful weren't. And the one man who shouldn't, who had no reason to be grateful, came back to say thank you. This whole story pictures life, doesn't it? First, it's a picture of the abundant grace of God. This is a cure by wholesale. You know, he heals with one word, this whole sizable miracle, 10 people at once. Second, it's a picture of a very prevalent spirit of ingratitude. Nine out of 10 people will forget every blessing that they receive in life. 
And third, it's a picture of unexpected grace. Grateful hearts often pop up where you least expect them. Now we discover what Jesus has to say about all this. Jesus, in verse uh, 17, Jesus asked, didn't I heal 10 men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. Jesus asked three questions. Didn't I heal 10 men? Yes. Where's the other nine? Gone. Is there no one here but this foreigner? No one. Now, if you listen carefully, you can hear some surprise and shock, but most of all, I think, sadness. Jesus wanted to know about the others. Where are they? Weren't they all healed? Why didn't they come back to, to say thank you? It's a good question. Why didn't they? Maybe they were in a hurry to see the priest. Maybe they thought Jesus was gone. Maybe they assumed Jesus knew how grateful they were. Maybe they were just too busy. So where are they now? They're gone off with their blessings. They're gone to see the priest. They're gone to see their families. But they're gone with no word of thanks to Jesus. Here's an amazing fact. You look at these ten lepers and they appear to be alike. See, all of them had leprosy. All of them were outcasts from society. All were determined to do something about it. All had heard about Jesus and believed that he could help them. All appealed to him, Lord, have mercy on us. All obeyed his word to go see the priest, and all of them were healed. And on the outside, they appeared to be identical, but what a difference. Only one returns. Nine didn't. One was grateful Nine weren't. One man found forgiveness. Nine did not. One man got two miracles. Nine of them got just one. You see, all ten were healed. That's one miracle. But the Samaritan was healed and forgiven. And that's two. And that's what Jesus means when he says, your faith has made you well. The question remains, where are the nine? And the answer is, they got what they wanted. And then they left. Jesus had just performed a mighty miracle for them, and they said, hey, thanks, Lord, but we can take it from here. We can handle our life all on our own from here. I think this is the particular sin of those of us who have been raised in the church. We have so little sense sometimes of what God has truly done for us. Often we don't love the Lord very much, And we don't feel gratitude every day for God's blessings. So how is this story related to our theme of investing in the kingdom? What's the application for our lives today? A couple of things. First, gratitude to God is the highest duty of every believer. Gratitude to God is the highest duty of every believer, and it's the supreme virtue from which all other blessings in our life follow. Secondly, ingratitude is the leprosy of our soul. See, it is ingratitude that eats away at us on the inside. It destroys our happiness. It cripples our joy. It withers our compassion. It paralyzes our praise. It makes us numb to the blessings of God in our life. Leprosy produced gratitude in this Samaritan, and he was healed, and he gave thanks to God Every good thing in the Christian life flows from a life of gratitude. 
when we realize the goodness of God, not in some abstract sense, not in some theological sense, but personally, not in some general sense, but to us personally, gratitude is the only result. And then and only then are we free to go and to pray and to tell others about Jesus. We do not need to be coerced. We don't need to be pressured. When we finally look and see what God has done in our life, when finally we can count our blessings and begin to name those, when we finally understand that every good and perfect gift comes down to us from the Father above, when we finally see that all of life comes gift-wrapped from the Father, when we know, when we really know that life is, is all about grace, then we can begin to praise and we can begin to give and we begin to sing and begin to tell other people and begin to serve and we enter into the abundant life that Jesus promised us. See, when finally we learn that we were all born with leprosy, when finally we see what Jesus has done for us, when finally it breaks through that it is only by the grace of God that we have anything of any value in this life, only then does our life really begin to change. And it's at that point that wonderful things begin to happen to us. What was maybe once a duty now becomes a privilege. What was once law becomes grace. What was demanded is now volunteered. What was forced is now free. And what was drudgery now becomes joy. What was taken for granted is just now offered up in praise to God. When all of that finally breaks through to us, then we come to God gladly. Ten men were healed that day, but only one came back to say thanks. So the question for you today is, are you living like one of the nine or the one? Are you living like one of the nine or the one? See, far too many of us take our blessings for granted and we groan about what God has asked us to do. Does that sound like you? Doesn't have to be that way. Praise is a choice. A thankful heart is a choice that we make. If no one forces us into bitterness. We choose the way we want to live. And the one who returned to give thanks chose not to forget what Jesus had done for him. And that's the secret to a thankful heart. Pray with me, will you? God, so often we do take you for granted. We take for granted that you will answer our prayers. We take for granted that you're going to heal us, make us whole. We take for granted that you love us. Forgive us for not appreciating your grace and your presence in our life. Help us to be more thankful. Give us faith to see you in everything that we do and in everyone around us so that we may be truly grateful all of the time. In Jesus' name we pray.